Vielen Dank, es ist eine große Ehre für mich hier zu sein. Leider ist nur meine deutsche Sprache nicht gut genug, um einen Vortrag zu halten. Ich könnte das einfach lesen auf Deutsch, aber das ist dann ein bisschen idiotisch. So leider muss ich auch die Sprache des Imperialismus we wechseln oder was. So, uh, thanks Bern for your kind introduction. I just cannot restrain from making one of two comments or two comments that uh, that research project in Essen, Antinomies of Postmodern Reason. I mean, you know why I chose this title. I wanted a pseudo-concrete title which appears to mean something but basically means you do whatever you want. What are antinomies of postmodern reason? It can be Island poetry, it can be agriculture in South Africa, like that was the idea. And also, when you mention these uh, children of men, here I was faithful to my, okay, Hegelian, it's not as simple as that, but the saying attributed to Hegel, if facts don't fit theory, so much worse for the facts. Uh, I gave to Alfonso Cuaron an interview, but I must proudly state before I saw the film. So everything you hear me saying there, I just in a proper Hegelian way deduced it without seeing the film. <laughs> and I sincerely, I was, I was sincerely sad and felt deceived upon seeing the film. <laughs> it didn't fit my theory. Okay. Okay, now a little bit more seriously. Because I really want to approach the topic which is not just this ridiculous story about courage, which this will be the first half, poetry and ethnic violence. But then I want to go to a more fundamental question, which was elaborated in different ways by many philosophers only in the 20th century, from Walter Benjamin to Martin Heidegger, Sprache und Gewalt, language and violence. So I would like to begin, as it is announced in the poster, with Radovan Karadzic, the Bosnian Serb leader responsible for ethnic cleansing in the post-Yugoslav war, who, as we all know, was finally arrested. Now I think it's the time to step back to take into view also the other side of Karadzic's personality. This psychiatrist by profession was not only a ruthless political and military leader, but also a poet. And, you know, now that he ended a certain political career, it's very fashionable to make fun of him, like what kind of ridiculous poet and so on. But uh, since in the 80s I lived in the same state as him, I did a little bit of inquiry and discovered that quite many poets who now denounce, denounce him as ethnic uh, 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 as agent of ethnic cleansing, murderer, ridiculous poet, were throughout the 80s quite respectfully translating him into Slovene, taking him very seriously as the new voice of Bosnian poetry and so on and so on. So I also think that Karadzic's poetry should not, be, should not be simply dismissed as ridiculous. It deserves a close reading since I think it does provide a key to how ethnic cleansing functions. Here are, for example, the first two lines of 
an untitled poem by Karadzic, identified by a dedication for Islet Sarajic, a friend of him. I quote Karadzic. Convert to my new faith, O crowd. I offer you what no one has had before. I offer you inclemency and wine. The one who won't have bread will be fed by the light of my son. People, nothing is forbidden in my faith. There is loving and drinking and looking at the sun for as long as you want. And this Godhead forbids you nothing. Oh, obey my call, brothers, people, crowd. End of quote. The suspension of moral prohibitions that we encounter here, remember, people, nothing is forbidden in my faith, is the crucial feature, I claim, of today's so-called so postmodern nationalism. This suspension, this nothing is forbidden, you can do what you want, this is what in psychoanalysis is called Iberich, superego. Superego is not an agent of prohibition. Superego is, you must, super, the best formula of Iberich, superego for me is the turning around of Kant's uh, Du sollst, then do, uh, du sollst, then do, then do kannst. It's, you can because you must. Uh, here, the cliché according to which passionate ethnic identification restores a firm set of values and beliefs in the confusing insecurity of a modern secular global society, this usual cliché, you know, we lack basic coordinates, so we sometimes... Uh, uh, we sometimes uh, uh, fall victim to the fundamentalist temptation, take refuge in old stable values and so on. I think on the contrary, we should turn around this. Nationalist fundamentalism rather serves as the operator of a secret, barely concealed, you may. It's today's, I mean, this idea came to me when I once in the 90s, when Milosevic was still in power, I risked a, bri I risked a brief visit to Belgrade. And by a total chance, I found myself in a restaurant with some very hardline nationalists, probably engaged in ethnic cleansing and so on. And, the, and it shocked me how they, they didn't know who I am, how they explained to me their engagement. It was exactly the opposite of this cliché. We are afraid of modernity, where there are no set rules, where, as Ulrich Beck would have put it, uh, everything is reflected, uh, chosen, you have to opt for it. No, they perceived our apparently hedonistic and permissive postmodern reflexive society as excessively saturated by rules and regulations. Their problem was not there is too much freedom, I don't find my way. Their problem is everything is overregulated. As they told me, this political correctness, I cannot rape a woman, I cannot steal, I, I, I cannot smoke when I want, I cannot eat what I want. No fat, no this, no sugar, and so on. So for them, the reference to some passionate ethnic identification, far from further restraining you, rather functioned as a liberating you may, you may violate 
not the Decalogue, but the stiff regulations of the peaceful coexistence in a liberal, tolerant society. You may drink and eat whatever you want, engage in patriarchal customs prohibited by liberal political correctness. You may, you may hate, fight, kill, rape. Without the full recognition of this perverse, pseudo-liberating effect of today's nationalism, without the full recognition of how the obscene, permissive superego supplements the explicit texture of social symbolic law, we condemn ourselves to the failure of grasping the true dynamics of so-called ethnic nationalism. Here is how Alexander Tianic, a Serb journalist, described way back in the 90s the strange kind of symbiosis between Milosevic and the Serbs. A wonderful quote. I start the quote. Milosevic generally sweets the Serbs. In the time of his rule, Serbs abolished the time for working. No one does anything. Milosevic allowed the flourishing of the black market and smuggling. You can appear on the state TV and insult Blair, Clinton, or anyone else of the world dignitaries. And incidentally, this was literally true. When NATO bombed Serbia, I remember on cable TV watching Serb news, and they reported a demonstration where somebody, and this was filmed by the camera, had a big poster which says, you remember, this was just after Levin, Monica Levinsky affair, where Clinton confessed that Monica Levinsky, as they put it, gave him a, a blowjob. And the big poster said, Bill, why are you bombing us? Did Monica suck out your brain also or something like that? This was state TV and so on. I go on. Milesevic gave us the right to carry weapons. He gave us the right to solve all our problems with weapons. He gave us also the right to drive stolen cars. Milosevic changed the daily life of Serbs into one great holiday and enabled us all to feel like high school pupils on a graduation trip, which means that nothing, but really nothing, of what you do can be punishable." End of quote. And again, I think this is fundamental. If you read an excellent text by Adorno from late 30s uh, on the psychological structure of fascist propaganda, Adorno already made this point in an implicit critique of Wilhelm Reich, who followed this line, which I think I agree here with Adorno, it's totally wrong. The line of the Nazi authoritarian personality is a consequence or follows to the end the line of patriarchal family. Adorno emphasizes that the so-called totalitarian personality is absolutely not a personality subordinated to patriarchal authority. With so-called totalitarian leader, Hitler, for example, we get a leader who is not a father figure. It's a leader, Adorno already got this, who, uh, how should we put it, plays on something which in today's Sprach theory we would have called pragmatic contradiction. The very way he, between the lines, uh, addresses you, the very way he calls you to do your duty, to do, subverts the explicit message. The explicit message is what? Something like, uh, for example, of Hitler in the early 30s, enough of Weimar corruption, decadence, 
time to sacrifice, to think about your country, sacrifice, work, and so on and so on. But the message between the lines is obey and we will have some fun, kill some Jews and so on and so on. Without this, how to put it, obscene superego bribery, it doesn't function. And I think this is how we should learn to read even today's ideology, even today. Today, it changed a little bit. Uh, often today, it's, it's the uh, apparently the opposite. Like, I wonder if you saw a film which I really like. It's a little bit primitive as a film. Uh, but uh, it's a uh, high school director who did uh, Halloween, John Carpenter. I think in early 90s, he did a movie. It's a little bit difficult to get, but you can get it, called They Live. It's one of these science fiction paranoia films, but it has a beautifully naive, vulgar, naive materialization of ideology. It's a story of an, it's a Hollywood extreme left. No wonder it was practically prohibited, not even shown. It's the story of John Nada. Nada is in Spanish nothing, so proletarian position. An unemployed Los Angeles worker who finds in an abandoned church strange sunglasses, a couple of strange sunglasses. He goes on the street, puts the sunglasses on, and what happens is that they are kind of ideologie critische. Brilliant. He sees the true message. It's so wonderfully naively done. Like he walks on the street and sees a big poster on in colors, go to Hawaii, have the holiday of your lifetime, enjoy. He puts glasses on and sees just a gray surface of the poster with words, don't think, obey, family, buy, money is your God. Like as if you see there the direct ideological message in a way. And I think the first thing we should ask today, even with the most innocent publicity, is what we, were, what we would have seen if we were to put on this kind of glasses. For example, let me go to the end, which for me is a very disgusting end. This is, I think, claim today's ideology at its worst. This calls for charity. You know, what's the typical image? Like you have in newspapers or on TV a short spot, usually first they sentimentally manipulate you, some African child starving with cut lips, I don't know, totally disformed, and then comes the message. Are you aware that for the price of two cappuccinos or whatever, you can save this guy's life, no? It sounds nice, but again, you put the glasses on. What do you see? What is the real message of this? I think something like people are starving in Africa. You know and I know that we don't give a damn about it. But contribute a little bit to our foundation and you will not only, you not only without sacrificing anything, you can go on enjoying your nice life. You can even feel good, like you see, I'm doing something and so on and so on. And we can be here, we should be here open to the end in this critical analysis. Uh, for example, let me take a very touchy subject, ecology. Do you really, why are you buying, or if you are, I'm not, why are you buying organic, organic uh, food, organic uh, fruit? Do you really believe that those half rotten apples <laughs> are any better than the nice looking one, chemical, 
I claim, I always have this paranoiac suspicion that it's all the same apples. First, they take out the beautiful ones and sell them as what they are, genetically. Then what remains, the rotten ones, they sell them for the double price. But what is my point? Maybe it's even true. My point is, look deep into your heart. I don't think you really believe that these apples are better. You are buying them because it makes you feel good. Look, even when I buy apples, I do something for Mother Earth. I participate, I do my small contribution to saving nature and so on and so on. You are not really buying health food. You are buying a pleasurable narcissistic satisfaction experience. And if you don't believe me, look at how publicity functions today. I think one can find a certain trend which is what? Abstractly, we can say we have three types of publicity, generally. First, the classical publicity where you refer to a certain real property of the object. Like, let's say I want, I'm, I'm, I'm selling a Land Rover car. I will say it spends only so much gasoline, it really can climb mountains, you can go into the lake, whatever. Like real properties, even if they are a lie, but they pretend to be real properties of the object. Then the next stage is this Thorsten Veblen stage of uh, uh, status symbol and so on. This type of publicity would refer to what social status does it give to you to have a Land Rover. But I think today, more and more, if you read it carefully, especially in the United States, I'm surprised how wide it is, it's more and more something else. It's neither real property, no social status, but uh, the meaning of life. What does it mean to you, the way, the life experience you get by it? I claim today's publicity for Land Rover wouldn't, would mention predominantly neither the supposed qualities of the car nor status symbol, but something like, do you feel alienated in a big Western city? in this uh, 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 concrete jungle and so on, just anonymous, drive Land Rover and you will feel an authentic man like in, in it will, you know, it will focus on the way you experience it. And uh, it, it is as if the commodity today tries to, at the same time, not only to consume, but to, to give a kind of a meaning of life justification. The clearest example, which is why I have some doubts, I'm not sure if terrorism always works, but at one point I would engage in it. Do you already have here uh, Starbucks coffee shops? There, I, okay, so that I cannot be prosecuted. If I were to be a terrorist, I would have bombed them. Why? Because I don't know how it is here in Germany, but in the United States, they, they, are, they, they, they developed to the end this perfection of referring to your experience. For, uh, for, uh, uh, as they, for example, recently I found in American Starbucks stores a kind of a paragraph, which is a programmatic paragraph uh, uh, displaced everywhere, where they claim when you buy a cappuccino with us, you don't only buy a cappuccino, you buy, they say, a certain ethic of life. 
you buy first uh, the, the uh, community experience. They openly play on this uh, sociological cliche that today no longer sense of community, blah, blah, uh, Starbucks try to reconstitute it. Then they emphasize how they only buy organic coffee, how they take care that also they build a water supply, they build hospitals for the Guatemala. So the idea is, you know, with a simple cup of cappuccino, it's no longer that stupid, you remember publicities from 10, 20 years ago, mm, what taste, what coffee is this? No. The point is when you drink a coffee, you are solidary with Mother Earth, you help the poor there. It's the meaning of life that they are selling, basically. It's a new sense of solidarity and so on and so on. I'm sorry we don't have the time more to go into this because my thesis is, this is what basically happens. That's why I was already, when I was young, skeptical about 68. This is how 68 was, by 68 I mean all the student upheaval of the 60s, was triumphantly reintegrated. Capitalism reinvented itself by basically tele taking over all this motto of against alienation, against bureaucratic anonymity, authentic experience, and so on and so on. And Okay, but let's go back to my main line. So, uh, uh, superego. What underlies all this is superego. Superego as the injunction, this, you may. You can, you should, because you can. And I claim that this is what we, fi we find, of course, different versions of this in our consum so-called consumerist societies where Let's talk frankly. The basic reference, the basic injunction that we get from society, what society expects from us, I claim, in this sense only, we live effectively in a post-ideological society. It's no longer some big ideological cause. We are no longer interpolated as, I don't know, sacrifice yourself for democracy, for communism, for Christianity, whatever. I mean, I don't know how you experience your life, but mostly I think if you ask a person, what do you think society wants from you? The answer would have been quite a correct one. I feel a pressure to make something out of myself, to live an authentic life, a kind of a slightly spiritualized Dalai Lama type hedonism. <laughs> Which is why Dalai Lama is such a hit in the West. That's, I think, the ruling ideology today. And what I'm claiming is that this attitude infested even its opposite, so-called fundamentalism, which already has this uh, pseudo-liberating dimension to it. For me, again, the model of, of for example, this kind of postmodern false liberation would have been what? I, I did some study, it interested me how it functioned Ku Klux Klan in a small south, southern city of United States of America in the 1920s, let us say, when Ku Klux Klan was still very strong. How did it function? Again, we should play this day-live game. Uh, the official message was Western civilization, protect Western civilization, Christian life, and so on and so on. But the real message was, okay, you protect Western civilization and Christian values by joining Ku Klux Klan, and on the top of it, join us in. We can have a nice 
a nice rape, lynch some blacks, rape some black girls, and so on and so on. This was the, let's call it, uh, libidinal, libidinal bribery, the, 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 surplus, the surplus enjoyment ideology, ideology it's uh, offering you. Without this, which is why uh, maybe some of you know, if you are also here, some of you literary students, the famous theory, it was famous when I was young, I no longer know what is famous today, uh, uh, Alexander Bakhtin, uh, he developed it apropos uh, Francois Rabelais, this notion of carnival, this magical moment of carnivalesque suspension of, you know, when beggar is king, king is beggar, uh, all the social rules are uh, suspended mom momentarily. Of course, I was always a Stalinist leftist, although even in, uh, I, uh, I totally oppose the notion that there is anything subversive in the authentic sense of emancipatory liberation in this notion of carnivalesque suspension. And I was very glad when I learned from a person whom I know, he's half friend of mine, although I don't agree with him theoretically. I made it clear to him when my friends and I take power, he goes to Gulag, Boris Groys, no? Uh, he told me a nice thing which totally confirms my reading, that they now discovered some uh, manuscript fragments from the time, mid-30s, when Bakhtin was, he was exiled in some smaller city, I think Kazan or where, as a librarian, that's how he survived the Stalinist purges. And it's clear from these manuscripts that what was his model for Carnival when he was writing the book on Rabelais. The Stalinist purges, that's the true Carnival. Today you are member of Politburo, tomorrow you are an English spy and so on, you know, like uh, it, it, it's this total carnivalesque suspension of hierarchies. That's absolutely crucial dimension of Stalinist purges. So even there we find clearly a, 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 a carnivalesque, carnivalesque suspension. So to go on, what I would say is that here poetry enters. In what sense? Plato's reputation suffers because of his claim that poets should be thrown out of the city. But I think, judging from my post-Yugoslav experience, this is a rather sensible advice. Because ethnic cleansing was prepared by poets' dangerous dreams. True, Milosevic manipulated nationalist passions, but it was the poets who delivered him the stuff which lent itself to manipulation. They, the sincere poets, not the corrupted politicians, were at the origin of it all. When, back in the 1970s, they started to sow the seeds of aggressive nationalism, not only in Serbia, but also in other ex-Yugoslav republics. Instead of the industrial military complex, we in post-Yugoslavia had the poetic military complex, personified by the twin figures of Radvan Karadzic, the poet, and Radko Mladic, the general. I think uh, that this link is crucial. In his Phenomenologie des Geistes, Hegel mentions the silent weaving weben of the spirit, the underground work of changing ideological coordinates, mostly invisible to the public eye, and then things suddenly explode, everyone is taken by surprise. I think this is what was going on in ex-Yugoslavia in the 1970s and 80s. So that when violence exploded in the late 80s, it was already too late. The old ideological consensus 
was truly putrid and collapsed in itself. And to avoid the illusion that the poetic military complex is a Balkan specialty, one should mention at least Hassan Ngeze, the Karadzic of Rwanda, who in his journal Kangura was systematically spreading anti-Tutsi hatred and call it for their genocide. And back to Yugoslavia, other ex-Yugoslav nations and Serbia itself had poets and writers recognized as great and authentic who were also fully engaged in nationalist projects and so on and so on. The story goes on endlessly. And again, you see what's my point? My point is we have here poetry, to put it in very simple terms, which is it's too easy to say this is not authentic poetry. It can be a quite serious, big poetry. But nonetheless, it, is, it can serve directly as an ideological tool of very brutal terror, ethnic cleansing, and so on and so on. And I think that it's way too easy to try to solve the problem by these simple limits. First, you try to claim this is not really a great poet. Then you try to claim, okay, he's a great poet, but he was brutally manipulated, and so on, and so on. It's more complex than that. The predominance of religiously or ethnically justified violence can be accounted for by the very fact that we live in an era which perceives itself as post-ideological. Since great public causes can no longer be mobilized, mobilized as a ground of mass violence, since our hegemonic ideology calls us to enjoy life and to realize ourselves, it is difficult for the majority of people to overcome their repulsion at torturing and killing another human being. The majority of people are nonetheless spontaneously moral. Killing another human being is deeply traumatic for most of us, I hope so. So in order to make people do it, a larger sacred cause is needed, which makes petty individual concerns about killing seem trivial. Religion or ethnic belonging fit this role perfectly. Of course, there are cases of pathological atheists who are able to commit mass murder just for pleasure, just for the sake of it. But they are rare exceptions. The majority needs to be anesthetized against their elementary sensitivity to the other's suffering. For this, a sacred cause is needed. More than a century ago, in his Karamazov brothers, Dostoevsky warned against the dangers of godless moral nihilism. You know the famous quote, if God doesn't exist, then everything is permitted. The lesson of today's so-called terrorism is on the contrary, that if there is a God, then everything, even blowing up hundreds of innocent bystanders, is permitted to those who claim to act directly on behalf of God. Because a direct link to God justifies our violation of any merely human considerations. The godless Stalinist communists were the ultimate proof of it. Everything was permitted to them since they perceived themselves as direct instruments of their divinity, of the historical necessity of progress towards communism. Religious ideologists usually claim that, true or not, 
religion makes some otherwise bad people do some good things. But I think that from today's experience, one should rather stick to Steve Weinberg, the theoretical physicist, who claimed that while without religion, good people would have been doing good things and bad people bad things, only religion can make good people do bad things. You need religion for that. One should only supplement Weinberg with not only religion, but also poetry. And the greater poetry is, the better it does this job. I want now to elaborate briefly another example, which happened a couple of years, 10 years ago in Bosnia. Uh, uh, back in June 1998, Carlos Westendorp, the head of the United Nations Administration of Bosnia, outlawed, prohibited, the use of the great Montenegro epic poem, The Mountain Wrath, Gorski Vienac, in Bosnian schools, claiming that this poem may offend the national feelings of the Muslim, and that its author, the, uh, the religious head, religious secular head in the early 19th century of Montenegro, Petar Petrovich Niegos, was an ideologist of ethnic cleansing. Now, this was a shock for Serbs, because one should recall that we are dealing here with not only what is considered the greatest literary work of the entire Serb literature, but with the text which has a mythic status and is considered the founding text of the Serb national identity. Prohibiting, prohibiting this text is something like prohibiting Homer or Sophocles in Greek schools or Shakespeare in English schools or Dante in Italian schools. Many critics dismissed this measure as political correctness brought to extreme, as not only a ridiculously anachronistic reading back into history of our today's attitudes, but also as a cultural imperialist imposition of specific liberal sensibilities onto other cultures. So what makes this epic poem, The Mountain Wrath, such a dangerous text? The poem, written by, again, the Montenegrin Prince Bishop Petar Petrovich Niegos, and first published in Vienna in 1847, is vaguely based on a historical event in Montenegro that took place towards the end of the 17th century, known as the extermination of the Muslim converts. The term is poturica in Serb language. When Montenegrins decided to simply kill all their compatriots, men, women, and children, who had agreed to being converted to Islam. The central figure of the poem is Prince Danilo, who at that time ruled over the multitude of Montenegro tribes. At a gathering of tribal chiefs, which opens the poem, Danilo's warriors suggest celebrating Pentecost by cleansing, literally, chistity, the verb is used to clean, cleansing their land of non-Christians. Now it is clear to everyone that they are dealing with a conflict among brothers of the same blood. In old tribal Montenegro, they had a ceremony to reconcile a blood feud called Kuma. When the Muslim suggests a Kuma reconciliation between them and between uh, Christian and Muslim, Montenegro, Montenegrins 
Danilo's men object that the Kuma ceremony requires baptism. In a very modern way, the Muslim Montenegrins, whose representatives also attend the gathering, offer an ecumenic analogy, suggesting that the Muslim haircutting ceremony is a parallel in their tradition to baptism. Their main argument is a plea for religious tolerance. Why could different religious orientations not coexist within the same ethnic group? A quote from the poem, official English translation. Small enough is our land, yet two faiths, two beliefs, there still may be, as in one bowl, soups may agree, let us still as brothers live. End of quote. To this multiculturalist pleas, dismissed by Bishop Danilo as a satanic temptation, his men respond with a stream of scatological insults. They insist slaughter is the only way. Danilo then orders the total destruction of the Muslim Montenegrins. The line from the poem, our land is foul, it reeks of this false religion. So in the so-called Christmas Eve massacre, all, Mon all Muslim Montenegrins were effectively killed. Children, wives, women, everyone. The mountain wrath ends with the triumphant extermination of all Muslim Montenegrins as a formal initiation of Serb nationhood. The shedding of Muslim blood is presented in itself as an act of baptism. I quote the final lines, to lines almost towards the end of the poem. No single seeing eye, no tongue of Turk escaped to tell his tale another day. We put them all under the sword, all those who would not be baptized. But who paid homage to the Holy Child were all baptized with sign of Christian cross. And as brother, each was hailed and greeted. We put to fire the Turkish houses that there might be no stick nor trace of these true servants of the devil." End of quote. This then is the case for the prosecution. We are talking about Bosnia in 1998, 10 years ago. In the present situation in ex-Yugoslavia, the basic message of the poem cannot but appear as providing ideological legitimization for ethnic cleansing, for the cleansing of the Slavic Muslims in Bosnia celebrating what can be considered the first paradigmatic case of such cleansing. How can one forget that Karadzic and his companions also perceived themselves as uncorrupted mountain people laying the siege on the corrupted valley of Sarajevo? That this was, you know, when Sarajevo was in the early 90s under siege, this was all the time evoked this poem in Serbia, this idea of we are the honest mountain people, we are laying siege to the corrupted valley, to the corrupted city. And effectively, already before 1990s, the mountain wrath, this poem, was regularly used by the Serb nationalists in this way, as a text which also tells the Serbs how to act today. Now, probably, your obvious reproach will be that this line of argumentation is ridiculously anachronistic, that I project into the past modern attitudes, and that if one reasons in this way, one should no less condemn endless classical works, starting with Homer's Iliad, which also displays tribal ethics. 
But the problem is that there were different attitudes in that time. You know what I mean? When, for example, they sacrificed, they torture in Iliad. You can say this was the predominant ethics. Here, things are complicated. The poem was written in 1840, and Niegos knew his contemporary romantic and enlightenment literature and ideology. And as I already showed to you, these more tolerant attitudes are represented within the poem itself, in which the Muslim Montenegrins plea for religious tolerance. Furthermore, the claim that Turkish Empire was multiculturally tolerant is not today's Orientalist fantasy. In my book, Parlak's View, I, I quote multiple passages of how this is very interesting, how today we perceive Muslims as intolerant and so on, exclusive. But do you know that till, till mid-19th century, Turkey, what shocked Western travelers when they visited Turkey was the extent of tolerance there. For example, some French guy who visited in the eight, 18th century Constantinople, Istanbul, reports on how this is horrible. You see there on the street uh, a, a Jewish priest talking with a Muslim clerk joined by a Catholic and so on, and he said, this is Mohammedan degeneration. They don't have the sense of unity and so on and so on. So it's nice how at that point, precisely, they were tolerant ahead of time. Ahead of time, in a way. Uh, and uh, so in, uh, there are numerous wonderful stories here. For example, there was some small Christian sect. They had a monastery in France in Napoleonic times. Napoleon threw them out. They found refugees somewhere close to here in Bavaria, in southern Germany, closer in Bavaria more to the east from here. Then in, uh, in 1855, I think, they were even thrown out from Germany. This was some Christian sect. They just wanted a small monastery to live in peace there. And then they applied to all European states who can give them just a small piece of land. All Europe. You know where they got it? In Turkish Empire, in today's Bosnia, near Banja Luka. So they were, at this level, more tolerant. Uh, I claim that what makes this poem so genuinely dangerous is that Niegos, its author, knew already of modern universalism. So his racism was no longer this particular pre-modern racism, my tribes, my limited community, against your limited community. He does something much more dangerous. He identifies his side with universal humanity. He claims we Montenegro Serbs are the voice of European freedom and reason. We are human as such. They, they are uh, inhuman. They, you know, it's already this universalist enlightenment racism. For example, when uh, a Muslim uh, nobleman from Skadar, who was himself ethnically Montenegro, wrote it to Niegos, this is real letter, asking him for better relations, why cannot we treat each other humanly, and so on. This is the answer of Niegos in a letter. Firstly, what you say is to wash up our hearts and then make nice 
way and harmony on our borders. My heart is always clean and washed for humans. But with inhuman people, a man is forced to behave inhumanly. Otherwise, he could not, even if he would like, and so on and so on. So his idea is clear. It's not simple tribal opposition is, we are human, you are not. So again, according to the standard view of the mountain wrath, its main plot, the extermination of the converts, illuminates the poem's basic theme, the struggle for freedom, justice, and dignity. And I remember from my youth uh, 40 years ago, this was still Yugoslavia in the late 60s, and I was, we were taught the whole passage of this poem, claiming, you see, this is the greatest poem about struggle for freedom, and so on, and so on. And now I must confess, retroactively, nobody even noticed that what really happens in this poem. It's not a struggle for freedom. It's a purely uh, religious problem. In the Montenegro nation, one-third were converted into Islam, but again, they remained culturally in language and so on. They remained Slavic. They remained Montenegrins. And their offer was, why cannot we live side by side? And we are not talking about some primitive times. We are talking, again, about 18th and 19th century, and then the reply was no, kill them all, and so on, and so on. So I claim that while fighting to correct a local flaw in their society, the presence of Muslim converts, the heroes in the poem fight for ideals which concern all mankind. Niegos, that's the horror of this poem. All its rhetoric is not the rhetoric of primitive tribal identity. It's the rhetoric of, there are even some references to Rousseau, if you want. It's a rhetoric of universal freedom. And I think it is precisely this universal character of the Montenegrin struggle. The fact that they stand for universal freedom, justice, and dignity, which excludes their opponents from the universal space. So now you will say, where do I stand here? I, I claim that I don't have a solution here, but I claim that one should absolutely admit this deadlock. The deadlock is, this undoubtedly is, to avoid any misunderstanding. I'm talking, my God, about Serb or even Southern Slavic Shakespeare. This guy is an absolutely, he's more than your Goethe, how should I put it? Okay, I mean, comparatively. He's the, the absolute, you know what I mean? He's like Homer, Dante, figure absolute founding figure. If you read at it, if you read the poem through today's experience, it's, of course, terrible. And my solution here is that we have to be honest enough to admit both. It is an authentic poem, and nonetheless, real violence as a consequence is inscribed into it. We cannot play the game, oh, this was only later. Uh, incidentally, we can even, in this case, that's why I like this case, because it's clinically pure in the sense that we can test it. For example, Niegos was still doing this. There were still, down there in the area of Montenegro, which was still held by Turks, there were some, still some, in the middle of 19th century, some Montenegro groups which were uh, Muslim. And Niegos often attacked them, a village killed them all, and 
the typical move was then to quickly send an emissary to Russia asking for protection so that the Russia put pressure on Turkey, that the Turkey didn't take too much revenge, and so on, uh, and so on, and so on. So my reference here would be Walter Benjamin, who claimed that works of art, you know this classical line from Benjamin, how works of art often function like shots taken on a film for which the developer has not yet been discovered. So that you know, even when the poet wrote it, you cannot read it properly. You can read a poem properly only from later experience. I think this is a case here. I think that, you know, this Benjaminian idea of text as an open, you have to read it retroactively to get the right meaning. I think we should do things like, we should exactly do it like this here. And again, my difficult pessimist conclusion is that the poetic truth or authentic experience, poetic, mystical, religious, is no guarantee against horrors in the sense that, that if you are sincere in the sense of have, if you have a nice, authentic experience, this somehow protects you from doing horrors in real life. I love here the extreme examples, if I may improvise a little bit. For example, did you read a wonderful book by Aldous Huxley, The Grey Eminence, Le Minon's Gris? It's the biography of Le Père Joseph, Father Joseph, who was, to cut a long story short, the secret advisor, the great eminence of Cardinal Richelieu of France in the time of 30 years' war, I think 1618-1648. Why such a fascination of this person? On the one hand, he was the worst real politician you can imagine. If, you know, we can play this nice, although of course imaginary, game of trying to locate the moment when things went wrong in Europe so that Hitler was possible. This guy is the ultimate reason if you play this game. Why? Uh, when there was the 30 years war, you know, about Catholicism, Protestantism, this guy had a nice idea, nice in a terrible, cynical sense. His idea, he immediately got it that this war is really not about religion, but about who will be the, the strongest state in Europe, dominating Europe, France or Germany. So for him, the true point of the war was prevent German unification, keep Germany weak. So what he did in a total cynicism was to make a pact with Catholic France, made a pact with Protestant Sweden against Germany. And basically they won in the sense at least of preventing German unification and then the story goes on. You know that because of this German Verspätung First World War and then Second World War. So one can, to, to extrapolate a little bit, one can say Père Joseph is at the origin of this mistake of European history, German Verspätung, which rendered Hitler possible. And he was. He ordered torturing, he personally tortured, poisoned. He was a true ugly politician. But what is the other side of the story? Read the book. Maybe it's even translated probably years ago. Hoxley was hit, at least when I was young. Uh, uh, at this same person in the evenings, metaphorically, not always the evenings, after he finished his dirty work day, work of the day, wrote the most authentic mystical meditations. And 
it's so difficult to acknowledge they are the real thing. They are, if I may put it in a little bit cynical way, at the level of, you know, the biggest hits of Teresa of Avilia, Meister Eckhart. They are that level. They are the top. No way to escape it. It's absolutely genuine. So this is what bothers Huxley. How is this possible? Huxley tries to avoid the problem so that he takes refugee in Far East, in Buddhism and so on. His solution is there is something wrong in Christianity itself. Please focus on Christ's suffering and so on, which opens up the way for this cynical militaristic manipulation, exploitation. So we need Eastern wisdom. But I think that here a counterexample can be listed. My favorite book, I refer to it all the time again. I don't think it's translated into German. You should read it in English. Brian Victoria. Stupid name, but he is a Zen Buddhist priest. Uh, the title of the book is Zen at War. What he does is something wonderful. He, th this book is no big theory, just a simple exploration of what was the attitude of Zen Buddhist community in Japan. There were, I think, around 10, 20 millions of them in the late 30s and early 40s. Uh, when Japan in the 30s, you know, attacked, occupied half of China and then World War II. And he, what he discovered is horrible. Where is this holistic, peaceful, organic, whatever attitude? Nowhere, except for literally among millions, maximum less than 10 dissidents, small voices, the entire Zen Buddhist hierarchy not only totally supported Japanese militarism, but now, now comes the nice point, uh, uh, actively provided legitimization for it. First, in this typical way which we find also in Europe, you know that sometimes to prevent the greater crime, you must do a smaller crime. So although Buddhism prevents you from taking life, if by taking a single life you save more, you can do it along these lines. I don't know if some of you read it when you were younger, at least this big popularizer of Zen Buddhism, Daisetsu Teitaro Suzuki. Haha, <laughs> read his writing from the 30s and 40s. They are much more interesting than this boring hippie stuff from the 60s. Uh, there, uh, he, he has, apropos of, Chinese in, uh, apropos of Japanese invasion of China, a wonderful text where he explains how Chinese are like are like evil children who don't see that the Japanese sword which is killing them is really a sword of love and so on. But that's not the true horror. The true horror is then how he sees a certain problem, which was also the problem of uh, Heinrich Himmler. Himmler was aware that Gestapo and SS people doing the Holocaust had to do horrible things, ethical, you know, kill not only soldiers, but helpless children, blah, blah. And Himmler, interestingly enough, does approach in some of his letters, I think, the problem of how can we do these horrible things without becoming bestialic, demonic being ourselves. You know what was Himmler's answer? Bhagavad Gita. He always had in his pocket a specially bound leather version. You know, in Bhagavad Gita, there is that famous line where uh, Arjuna, I think, the warrior king, in, when just before the battle breaks down, like, my God, thousands will die, what can I do? And then Krishna, I don't know which God, appears to him and tells him, basically, uh, reality is not true reality, it's just an appearance. 
reality has no substantial value, so go on in the battle, kill, no problem, and so on and so on. The idea is in Bhagavad Gita you find this notion of acting at a distance, in the sense of acting without being engaged in it. And that's what uh, Suzuki proposes there. He has a wonderful, in the horrible sense, metaphor. He really gives advice to soldiers how to kill without feeling bad. And his solution is go through Buddhist, Zen Buddhist Satori, this experience of void, and you will be able to do it. You know, he has, I will almost verbatim quote it now, he has a wonderful passage where he says, if you are still part engaged in this false empirical reality, then you think there is, uh, sorry, I don't mean you personally, but there has to be someone. Here I have a sword, I now push my sword into your chest. Ah, says Suzuki, no, this is wrong. We are still caught in the false appearance of Maya where I misperceive myself as an agent and so on. Suzuki said the right attitude is the following one. I am no one, I'm just a pure impersonal gaze observing how my sword is dancing in the air and as part of the same dance, your body burned somehow falls on my... <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, so, and literally, he then goes even a step further and says that since ordinary people don't have enough time, money to engage in these years of meditation, he says, to ordinary people, absolute military discipline is the best way to reach Buddhist enlightenment. And he gives an example. When the officer tells you, shoot, and when you are ready to shoot, without thinking, you overcome your false identity, your false self, which asks you. So now, what's my point here? Ah, here I must be open now. My point is not here, oh, you see, Zen Buddhists, dirty militarists, and so on. No, I, it's authentic, deep, exist, I wouldn't even say mystical, this is probably theoretically wrong, I mean, to use these European terms for them, but let's call it neutrally spiritual. Deep spiritual experience, nonetheless, it can justify, it can justify ethnic. And incidentally, I even admire Suzuki, because at least after World War II, he wasn't ashamed to admit that he was doing that. His solution was a total technicization. He liked to emphasize in his writing after World War II that Zen Buddhism is not an ethics, is not, an, uh, is not things to political. It, he, he claimed it's a pure technology of meditation. You can be politically his words. Capitalist, liberal, fascist, communist, I don't care. This is just a, a, a technique of, of meditation. So. Uh, uh, what I'm claiming is that this is so difficult to accept. And here, I don't have time to, I would have to go into, also a little bit into uh, uh, psychoanalysis. Because in psychoanalytic terms, what this means is, and this would have been my critique of this Rortian, although with Rorty it's sometimes a little bit more complex, I'm talking about Richard Rorty, uh, theory of this discursive postmodernism, like we are, I think this is the usual phrase, we are stories we are telling ourselves about ourselves. That our identity is made of the narrative texture we compose for ourselves. And then, of course, from here you get this typical Rortian liberal ethics, 
that there is no objective truth, each his, her, their story. So our basic right is the right to complain about our pain, to tell our side, our story. From here comes one of the most disgusting ethical mottos. It was used by some stupid, this multicultural conference, I really hate them, where the motto of this conference was, it sounds so deep, was an enemy is someone whose story we were not ready to hear. It sounds so deep, you know, like, okay, this time, sorry, you, not you, <laughs> you are already dead from, <laughs> like, you know, I objectifies you, you are my enemy, but if I allow you to tell your story, I can see you are also a person with your fears, dreams, I can not any longer hate you. I think this is uh, doubly false, worthless, existentially. First, uh, to show you how false it is, do something very simple. Replace the general forum with a concrete one. Would you also say Adolf Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to hear <laughs> his side of the story? And you should. This is why, in spite of all its problematic character, and who has the time today to read 1,000 pages, is it already translated in German? I'm not sure. That novel, Le Bienveillant, The Kindly Ones, Jonathan Little. This is why it provoked such an unease, because it tells the story from the side of a mid-level bureaucrat Holocaust SS officer who simply presents his case in detail and so on and so on. That's so horrible. I mean, here, this is how I read also uh, uh, Hannah Arendt's banality of evil. I mean, you know, when you have an evil person who does horrible things, it's not that if you look closely, you will discover a monster. No, you will discover somebody who likes his children. Maybe he's even ready to sacrifice himself for his friends and so on and so on. Incidentally, if you read that book, which is totally worthless theoretically, I think, but was a bestseller, uh, 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 Goldhagen, uh, Hitler's Willing Executioners. The only interesting thing I find in this book is the name of the author. This is a guy who claims that you know, uh, anti-Semitism is his German collective identity and so on. And this guy's name is Hagen and Gold. Hagen, you know, is the figure in Wagner's ring who is looking for gold. <laughs> it's a wonderful <laughs> joke. Okay, but what I want to say is that uh, the only good part of that book is, I think, one of the middle chapter, documentary chapter, where he quotes all the home letters, and effectively, you can see how the very people who were killing children, blah, 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 uh, 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 beating Jews out of the ghettos in, in, in Eastern Europe, were ready to then, in a battle, to sacrifice for a friend, they cared about their children. I mean, I don't think there is any truth in how you from within experience yourself. The story you are telling yourself about yourself, this is what in psychoanalysis we call fantasy as a fundamental lie. It's a fundamental lie. That's not the truth. The, the truth is what you try to cover with the story. The truth is, as they say in X-Files, you know, the truth is out there. What, 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 I mean, you know, the, the, your inner self-experience is not, it's not true. And here, I think, poets, poets were always ready to provide 
the way you experience yourself and in this way to be used to legitimize violence and so on and so on. So if you allow me a little bit more, because now comes the only interesting theoretical part. <laughs> uh, a little bit more general. So if we cannot simply oppose language and violence, if language or poetry as language at its most creative can harbor violence, how does this violence function. You know that in his critique of violence, Benjamin raises this question, is any nonviolent resolution of conflict possible? Uh, although later he develops so-called divine violence, in the beginning of his Surkritik der Gewalt, Benjamin claims that there is a sphere of human agreement which is nonviolent to the extent that it is wholly inaccessible to violence the proper sphere of understanding language. This thesis of Benjamin belongs to the mainstream tradition in which the predominant idea of language and symbolic order is that of the medium of versioning, reconciliation, and mediation of peaceful coexistence. It's not only Habermas, but even early Lacan whose idea is this, the idea that we have this imaginary violent dual conflicts, and then language is as such a medium of reconciliation. The idea being that even if I'm in language violent to you, shout that you give orders, already at the most elementary level, I must recognize you as a partner in dialogue. So from here, it's only one step to what Habermas develops in detail of how there is a certain ethic of mutual reconciliation inherent to language as such. So that when language is used for domination and violence, it's uh, an external, because of power relations, distortion of language. I, I am tempted to claim exactly the opposite, that there is a violence in language a violence not only in this sense widely analyzed by uh, social linguistic or by some theorists like Pierre Bourdieu, symbolic violence of how by addressing you in a certain way I can reproduce the whole set of domination and so on, all that. But in a more radical sense, language is in a way found, found always at the foundation of a community. It's the very substantial medium in which, within which we coexist. But as such, language is a great divider. In what sense? In the sense that, uh, imagine you live on the same street with some people from other culture, an Algerian, a Turk, a Chinese, or whatever. This is, for me, the absolute violence, that although you live physically in the same world, you live in different worlds. It's, kind of a, it's an absolute gap. And this is the violence of language, that it violently imposes a certain what, in very non-appropriate terms, we would have called a world view. It's a certain vision of reality horizon of understanding, which is ultimately violently imposed and exclusive of others. Even when you are open to the other, you are automatically 
translating the other into your horizon, and so on and so on. Heidegger, of all people, isolated very nicely this violent aspect of language when he, and here Heidegger has something important to say, I claim. When Heidegger uh, refers to essence of language as the verbal form, das Wesen, essence of language, what does he mean? He means that uh, the language, he doesn't mean the essence of language. He means that the language vest essentializes in the sense that establish relations of what is crucial, what is not crucial, and so on. A very simple example. For example, let's take a castrato voice. Till early modernity, castrato voice was considered the most beautiful. It was basically considered as the closest we can get to angel's voice before the fall, before sexual difference, before Eve intervened, of course. Uh, but a little bit later with, modern, with French Revolution enlightenment, castrato voice was considered a disgusting abomination and so on. Or the classical, ridiculously famous example of Swiss Alps, which, you know, when Goethe was very young, they were still considered a horror, no? Like this ugly part, you pass over it just with curtains closed when going to beautiful Italy. As you probably know, 20 years later, they were considered this violent, sublime, and so on and so on. Why does this happen? Something changes is language. Language, as it were, establishes priority. This would have been the essencing of language, which is violent. Violent in the sense that it's not in continuity with reality. It twists, it throws out of balance reality. This is the violence of language of which Heidegger talks. But now I would like to, and this is, again, language as violently, as, as Heidegger puts it, the house of being. That is to say, founding a certain horizon of meaning. The world is disclosed, opened up to us through language as a certain horizon of meaning. And Heidegger is fully aware this is always an extremely violent act. And of course, this is why in all political physical violence, there is always language. When an anti-Semite beats a Jew, when a skinhead beats a foreigner, and so on, it's never just physical. You should ask, why does he find the foreigner or the Jew disgusting? Because the horizon of meaning within which he dwells tells him this. There is no hu properly human violence without language, which is not grounded in language. But here I would like to supplement Heidegger with Jacques Lacan. Throughout his work, Lacan proposes variations on Heidegger's motive of language as the house of being. But uh, Lacan adds something. For Lacan, language is a torture house of being. Quote from Lacan, in the light of the Freudian experience, man is a subject caught in and tortured by language. And that's for Lacan the basic lesson of psychoanalysis. What we call symptoms, uh, from conversion symptoms inscribed into the body up to total psychotic breakdowns, these are all 
so many traces of how there is, that's Lacan's idea, between living being and language there is an original gap. This is why also, as we know, in so-called primitive societies, the entry into language or into symbolic community is always marked by some act of violence, initiatic, sacrifice, or whatever. This, for Lacan, Heidegger ignores. This radical discord, this harmony between language and subject. And this, as I will not have time to develop it fully today, but this is the reason why Lacan sticks to the term subject. Because people often ask, Lacan, Jacques Lacan, who was a close reader of Heidegger, uh, although they were not really friends, Heidegger thought Lacan was that famous phrase. Heidegger's reaction to Lacan's écrit was, here is, ein, here is a psychiatrist who himself needs a psychiatrist, or something like that, and so on. But nonetheless, why did Lacan insist, did, why didn't he want to give up the term of subject? What was for Lacan missing in Heidegger's Dasein? Was, as his name for the essence of being human, for Lacan, was not, Lacan was not a subjectivist in this active sense of, for Heidegger, we are just passive beings, the da, the here of being, and where is the active creativity of human? No, it's rather this radical passivity, the trauma, the pain of being incorporated into language. The psychoanalytic term for this wound of language is, of course, uh, symbolic castration. But now, Lacan implicitly draws another conclusion from this. Uh, the conclusion is that not only language tortures us, again, in this sense that being integrated into language is always a traumatic experience. But uh, language as such, I think this is the deepest insight, often it's ignored by Lacan, that language as such, in its substantial presence as the big other, our spiritual substance, is stupid. It's inherently stupid, conforming stupid, whatever you want, and I quote here Elfriede Jelinek, I don't like too much, I'm too conservative, her crazy, but she said, she said something very nice. She wrote, language should be tortured to tell the truth. And I think this is poetry. Poetry is a form of torture. Just imagine at the most naive level what, how much linguistic torture is involved in doing a poem. How much you must force, cut words, artificial. The idea is that language the idea is that we should drop this mystique of we must open our eyes to the wisdom message which is in language itself. Language itself is stupid. Language at its purest are what? Are proverbs. Proverbs are for me the stupidity at its purest. Proverbs are always totally conformist. Like, you know, for example, let's say you are about to do something risky and you succeed. Then you have a proverb to legitimize it. I don't know what you have. We in Slovenia have something like only those who risk can profit or like celebrating risk. Then let's say you do the same, but you fail. Ah, no problem. You have the opposite proverb. I don't know what you have in Slovenia. We have like, you cannot urinate against the wind, something like that. You know, <laughs> this conformist stupidity, this is the wisdom of language. Like, 
For anything, I have a pro for everything, whatever happens, I have a proverb to justify it and so on. So this idea that, that you have to treat brutally language, poets torture language, poets break all the rules of natural flow, poets do extreme violence to language. And I think the same goes for all arts, for example, for cinema. There is a big opposition in cinema theory between Eisenstein on the one side, who liked cutting, montage, and then Bazin, Tarkovsky, this continuous long shots, and so on. Eisenstein, my God, he all the time uses the language of torture. Cut, montage, artificial. He's literally creating Frankensteins. He's fascinated by how you can cut a fragment out and then recompose it artificially and so on. Now you will say, but isn't this modern cinema with Rossellini, André Bazin, up to Tarkovsky, where the idea is you should let the images speak, not intervene with montage? Isn't this the opposite, where precisely they try to cancel this violence. No, I claim it's just a different violence. Look a little bit of Tarkovsky. It's just protracting. If, the, if Eisenstein is a torturer at the level of I cut your fingers and so on, uh, how do you call that apparat? I think it's called, it's called uh, I, I knew the English name, uh, that torture to, to extend you, you know. Yeah, yeah, the, Tarkovsky is this kind of torturer. So for me, when you have a debate between Eisenstein and Tarkovsky, it's two torturers talking, no? Eisenstein saying, I cut him to pieces. No, no, said Tarkovsky, it's better to, to stretch him a little bit, and so on. But why this? Again, because uh, the idea is that uh, language as such is at its fundamental ally. Okay, now it's time to finish, so I don't have time to go into the really interesting part, how precisely because of missing this dimension of violence, it can be nicely shown how Heidegger, in his otherwise interesting reading of Antigone, misses the dimension which is so blatantly, openly present in Sophocles, the dimension of between the two death. You know, this idea of Antigone is alive, but already symbolically death, and so on and so on. This space between the two deaths. And I think we can even link these to, I'm now quickly jumping, I don't have time to do it. We can even link this to the topic of Agamben, Homo Sacer, and so on. Homo Sacer is precisely human being symbolically dead human being. You are alive, but excluded from community, reduced to bare life. And this is what happened in concentration camps and so on. And I'm so sad I don't have time more to go into it, because it can also be shown one of the wonderful criticisms of Heidegger that I read from Lacanian standpoint is a French reader of Lacan. Unfortunately, he died wonderful book wrote, he wrote, Ce que Lacan dit de lettres, what Lacan says about being Francois Balmès, who claimed in an apparently very naive clinical way that Heidegger's existential analytic of Dasein, of Sein zum Tode, being towards death, is appropriate for neurotics but cannot cover psychotics. It sounds so stupidly naive, but I think it works. Why? Because it's very interesting to read, if you read those uh, letters between Heidegger and, uh, 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 how is he called, Bernard Mo Mo 
the Swiss psychiatrist whom Heidegger was visiting, not Bernard Moss, something like that. Okay, it will come to me. Uh, 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 it, you can see how when this psychiatrist presents to Heidegger cases, Heidegger, all he can do is put variations on which remain within the horizon of this Sein zum Tode or this existential engagement, you know, the scheme of Sorge and so on. What Heidegger cannot, to put it in the terms of Sein und Zeit, a psychotic is a subject who is no longer engaged in Sein zum Tode or in uh, this structure of Sorge, how you know through the past future project, you approach the present out of Entwurf, the past, this structure, this is suspended in a psychotic. Psychotic is literally disengaged, no tension towards that. He, in a way, already is a living dead. Heidegger cannot think that. It's a very nice, intelligent critique. It can even be further developed. I've written about it, about how a French Hegelian philosopher, pupil of Derrida, Catherine Malabou wrote a wonderful book called Le Nouveau Blessé, the new, not blessed, as I mistranslated, the new wounded, uh, where she claims that the so-called post-traumatic subjects are the new form of pathology, which will be the pathology of the 21st century. And these are exactly the living dead. The, their first historical example, not empirical, but that passed into white historical memory, are again what Agamben talks about, so-called uh, Muslims, Muslims from concentration camps, living dead. They're still alive, can react, talk, but they're, as it were, deprived of all symbolic substance, non-engaged, totally passive, uh, the living dead. So this is for Lacan. He has a very radical reading here. This is for Lacan the truly radical dimension of Cartesian cogito which escapes Heidegger. But now uh, let me go just on to conclude. So now to conclude, I would like to return to Benjamin. You know how Benjamin distinguishes between mythic violence, which is Staatsbildend, constitutes a state, this obscene violence, which and then the divine violence, which is Staatszerstörend emancipatory, revolutionary, and so on. I claim that maybe, and that would be my final thesis, we should apply the same to language. The violence of which Heidegger speaks when he speaks about this violent imposition of mythos as the founding power would be sprachbildende Gewalt. The violence of imposing a certain comprehension of being, certain disclosure of world, and so on, and so on. But then we should, and this for me is maybe missing in Heidegger, we should supplement this violence with Sprachzerstörend, with, with what would be the language equivalent of divine violence in politics. This violence on language, which where you torture violence, sorry, you torture language, to make it tell the truth. And I think because this torture is the only way to counteract the 
potential for real violence even in great poetry. I think there are poets who cannot be used the way that great Montenegro poet and many others can be used. These are those poets, maybe, I'm not so sure. I'm here with Heidegger from Helderlin on, who, for example, and it's typical how limited is here. My good friend Eric Sandner wrote an early book on Helderin where he shows how, although Heidegger often refers to late Herderlin with this paratactic structure more, he, he really, how should I put it, although Helderin is Heidegger's divine, the poet, he misses this language torturing dimension in late Helderlin. And this is how we should counteract so the potential of real violence even counteract the danger in language, great poetry to ground violence. So either we can rely on mythic violence, we end up in torturing or we torture language and in this way stop real torture. Thank you very much.